Hey there, we at Blue Wire wanted to thank you for your continued support of this podcast. With over 90 podcasts across our network, we are committed to bringing you great content to fill that sport-shaped hole in your heart. To find more Blue Wire pods, search for us on iTunes or check out bluewirepods.com. And remember, one day sports will return and it will be glorious. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Blue Wire. Breeze hits it in the air to center. We will see you tomorrow night. Jones with a high drive to left field. Gardner back, and that one is gone! Maria, swing and a drive! To deep right! Away back! Off the pole! The Washington Nationals are world champions for the first time in franchise history. So it's the walk-off. We've got a special edition of the walk-off here because uh, a guy that, and I think you agree on this, Ryan, a guy that we both think should be in the Hall of Fame as a contributor, Bill James, is going to join us, and he's going to do it right now. So uh, for Ryan and Holden here, Bill, thank you so much for the time today. How you been? What are you doing? Are you getting by? I know it's nice and quiet uh, where you live out there in Kansas, but I feel like uh, everybody has got to be feeling like they're living a nice, quiet life right now. Yeah, about quiet works for me. I, I'm getting a, I'm getting a lot of work done. Today. There's nothing else to do. There's no games on TV, and the, uh, so I just sit here and work. I'm, I'm good. Uh, hey, Bill, and I feel awful calling you that because uh, I've looked up to you and your work for a long time. I, I typically when we have ball players on here, I don't fangirl over them, but you're somebody who, uh, because I couldn't be a major league baseball player, I've long admired and admired your work, but. Um, we spoke briefly the other day of the awards in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and um, I really think they were a disaster. And I'm curious, what, what do you think, because I think you largely agreed, what do you think the, the root of that was? Um, I think, well, it was, uh, see, there's a word I can't use here. It starts with bull. The, uh, <laughs> you can use it. You can use it. There's a there was a protective shield around the conventional wisdom at the time, and that's always there. But in that era, in that particular era, it has gotten stronger than it was before. If you look back to the MVP awards of the 40s and the 50s, uh, some of them you might argue with, but some mostly they were pretty good. The Cy Young awards were terrible, but but uh, but the MVP awards were mostly pretty good. The uh, uh, and then that, that era came from, I don't know, well, maybe 78 to 88, where the there was just screwy awards every year. Yeah, and um, one of the things that stood out to me is the uh, infatuation with relief pitching at the time. Willie Hernandez in 84 really sticks out. Uh, Bedrosian winning the Cy Young Award in 87. There's a few others. Raleigh Fingers, I think, won an MVP. And... Um, I think it is almost an indication that BBWAA, uh, a lot of them do a great job, but I think some of them have sort of this infatuation with the uh, unknown. And at the time, the unknown was the value of this relief pitcher or closer. Do you think there's any of that? Sure. I mean, it was a new thing, right? They had to have a, a closer. The concept of a closer really originated in uh, 78 or 79. And, and I, you probably know this, but 
the concept of a closer comes from uh, from Bruce Suter, and Suter had two straight years where he was just unhittable the first half of the year, and then the second half of the year he was not very good. The uh, and uh, his manager Herman Frank said, "Okay, from now on, we're not going to use him just to pitch any time it's close in a close game. We're only going to use him to close out win." And and that's that's really where the closer started was '79, and it was people were fascinated with the shiny object, as you said, and and uh, some of those. Well, it's it's very hard to measure the value of a reliever against the start anyway because they don't they pitch a fifth as many innings or a fourth as many innings, and, but they're more high pressure innings. And so it's a trade off. But I mean, Bedrosian in '87 or whatever it is, that's a joke. There's no way. He's, even the, one of the 10 best pitchers in the league. Hey, Bill. So I look at judging players statistically through different eras, and I just wonder, when you look back at guys that played in the 80s and before, I mean, let's look at a guy, you know, like um, Cal Ripken Jr. When you go back and talk about those lines, do you use the old school ones, like the, the batting slash 279, 28, 108, anything like that? Or do you now look at them in the way that statistics started analyzing players more recently? You know, so, so going back in time, do, do you still have a habit of maybe looking at those players in the way that they were judged back then? Well, I do. Yeah, and in terms of habit, I mean, I try to uh, cross-reference the modern analytic values. And, and there's a lot of, you know, I try to pay attention and be careful that I'm not saying this, but but just instinctive habit. The way I learned when I was a kid, and the way I did until I was until I convinced everybody to do it a different way. It was uh, uh, look at you know counting stats and and simple averages. And that's still what's in my head. To be frank. But those were more important back then. So I feel like, as opposed to on base percentage, has always been important. But I feel like from analyzing a team in the 80s and in the 90s, really before then, it was like a guy can get the can get batting average. Batting average is going to be so important as opposed to on base slugging percentage is there. But that's not as important as home runs and RBI. So I kind of feel like now that this that we have different ways of analyzing it, the game has tailored itself around those numbers to where. The game that tailored itself around the numbers in the 90s and the 80s and before just wanted just showed how good you were in a different way. So I kind of like looking back at those old stats and doing the old slash line. Yeah, well, the thing is that once in a while, they're just totally wrong, right? There's once mm-hmm. in a while where a guy has you know 30 homers, and 100 RBI and a 290 batting average. But if you place it in the context of park and you look at his defense and you look at his speed and his and his uh uh, on base percentage, you know, he's actually not worth a crap. The, uh, that happens once in a while. But 90% of the time, 90% of the time, the pitcher who wins 20 games is a really good pitcher, right? The uh, 90% of the time, the guy who drives in 100 runs is a really good hitter. It's just occasionally there's a, a fluke you have to watch out for. Yeah, like uh, I think Kingman had a couple of those years where he was negative war, but still like a 30-90 guy at least. But um, in line with what Holden was saying, one guy who sticks out as um, not analytically friendly today and somebody who um, uh, Keith Law said to me once was one of the worst Hall of Fame inductions of all time uh, was Lou Brock. 
And um, I, I look at his numbers and analytically and from sabermetrics and wins above replacement, uh, I think something that you've started 40 years ago now, um, he's, he's really maybe not the best, but he really did do what was expected of a leadoff guy at the time, hitting for batting average and stealing bases. And I, I guess sort of what Holden's saying is, should that be held against him? Would his game possibly have been modeled differently if it was about uh, taking pitches and trying just to get on base by any means necessary? Well, I mean, this relates to a really broad question about a culture, but I always argue that I'm, I'm against tearing down statues. You know, you can't, you can't uh, expect people in the past to have known things that at that time nobody knew. Uh, you, you, you can't expect uh, you, you can't expect people in the past to have benefited from knowledge that just didn't exist at the time. And at the time that Lou Brock was playing, people did not really understand that uh, you know hitting that swinging at everything and and even if you hit 300 wasn't necessarily a good thing so i mean i can see it either way if you ask what's his value in terms of wins it's maybe not at the level of your what you would hope for in a hall of famer but if in terms of what he was expected to do and how well he did it well i never think i don't honestly think of him as a weak hall of famer maybe he was but i don't think of him that way yeah, I think I, I agree with you and all that. Um, and shifting to the Hall of Fame, uh, there's been a huge push of late. Uh, I'm not even going to get into Edgar Martinez because he got in and I believe he should have. But um, there's been a push from certain parts of BBWA for um, Omar Vizquel. Uh I think that he was a fantastic fielder. There's no doubt about that. But it's sort of like this whole um, shiny object thing that you brought up in that Fielding value and the value of all-time great defense over just great defense is still relatively unknown. And I, I think that that fascination with Omar Vizquel and his defense is sort of like maybe BBWA's way of being ahead of the curve. Uh, and in reality, I, I just don't think there's that much value added from going from, say, Jimmy Rollins, to, who is a great fielder, uh, to an Omar Vizquel. And when you look at the players as a whole, Jimmy Rollins is a far better overall shortstop because he contributed offensively, where Omar Vizquel was about 20% below league average for his career. Now, do you think that when it comes to those analytics and looking at offense versus defense, that that's something that has to be considered as a whole? Um like if Ken Omar Vizquel get in the Hall of Fame, if it is accepted that Jimmy Rollins, who will not get in the Hall of Fame, was a better player overall. <clears throat> I would agree with all of that, I think. Uh, but, you know, I mean, Omar played forever and uh, he did have he was a wonderful bunter. The uh, I mean, he, it, as a hitter, he wasn't 20 percent below the league, 50 percent below the league, but he. Managed to hide that by bunting for a hit 15, 20 times a year. The uh, and uh, the uh, if he, I would not vote for Omar for this Hall of Fame, and I don't believe that the argument that he's just as good as Ozzy Smith is true. I think I don't think he was close to being as good as Ozzy Smith. On the other hand, uh, it's 
difficult to prove anything with respect to fielding. It's difficult to, we don't, we've come a long way from where we were in 1970 in terms of being able to measure the value of a good fielder. But over the course of his career, our, our measurement of, of what he contributed to his team by his fielding are not reliable enough that I would feel like I needed to argue strongly against his selection either. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And uh, that's sort of how I feel. I just don't understand the overwhelming support that he has gotten because he is an all-time great fielder. I don't put him on par with Ozzie Smith. Uh, and then in terms of overall, I, I like I said, I don't put him on par with Jimmy Rollins. Um, I, I think, and uh, I'll defer to your expertise, but I, I think that BBWA pays a huge premium to shortstops over second baseman and third baseman. And just for an yeah. example, the BBWAA has only inducted seven third basemen ever in Chipper Jones, Wade Boggs, George Brett, Mike Schmidt, Brooks Robinson, um, Eddie Matthews, and Pie Trainer. So we're talking the top of the top there, like the tip of the spear. Right. And I, I guess I'm wondering, how is it that a Barry Larkin can get in so easily? And then Scott Rowland's going to end up on the veterans uh, ballot in all likelihood. Right. So that's a, that's a, an interesting question. I was going to, uh, I was going to cite Barry Larkin. Larkin is a, and he was, Larkin's a fine, fine player. The, uh, uh, and you know, he's not a, in any sense a disgrace to the hall of fame, but it is a little curious that he went in as easily as he did. And, and it's a little hard to explain why that happened. Regarding Omar though, my explanation of it is this, that, our minds being relatively simple, and I'm not talking about other people, but myself included. We have simple minds, uh, and, and so we, we simplify arguments into very few dimensions. So if a player is really good at one thing, he tends to be overrated. Now, Rod Carew, and Carew is a you know, legitimate Hall of Famer, but really he was not the most productive hitter in the league. But he was really, really good at one thing, which is hitting singles. So people thought of him as the best hitter in the league because he could do that. His, his average was so high. If if you do one thing really well and you don't have a uh, a glaring hole in your game, well, uh, Kingman would be the counterpoint to that, right? Kingman did one thing really well. He had home runs, but he had he had glaring holes in his games, and plus he was his jerks. So. Uh, he didn't benefit from that. But a lot of times the player who does one thing really well tends to be overrated, I think. Yeah, I again, I agree with you. And uh, one other thing that I, I guess hopefully it's getting past us now is the Coors Field argument. And I understand that it's an offensive-friendly park. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of the uh, hangover effect, which I think a lot of ballplayers deal with. Walker specifically in his first three seasons in Colorado – but I guess my question for you is, why do you think BBWA holds um, players accountable for playing their home games at Coors Field, but not places like um, uh, Fenway Park, Wade Boggs' numbers, uh, one of my favorite yeah. ball players of all time, far superior at Fenway Park than anywhere else. He was a 527 slugger in 854 games at Fenway Park, sub 400 everywhere else. So. Right. It, what do you what do you think the reason is for holding them accountable only for um, the production that Coors Field uh, grants 
and then not giving any credit to the fact that they have to go on the road and deal with the hangover effect. And then also not holding the fact that players play at Fenway Park or back. I don't know if Chuck Klein got voted in on the um, uh, BBWA ballot, but back when the Baker Bowl or any of these other hitter friendly parks, why is it that uh, players aren't held accountable for, for playing their home games there? I think it's just hard to calibrate. I mean, uh, first of all, Fenway Park is not Fenway Park is more similar to uh, the worst hitters park in baseball than it is to Coors Field. I mean, Coors Field is just totally different. Uh, not or or uh, it's it's not Fenway is not anywhere similar to Coors. It's in the same direction, but not close. The uh, but I think I mean I. I believe Todd Helton is a Hall of Famer, for example. I, and I think, uh, but the, the thing is that there is, his numbers are just so wacky that, first of all, he's he's hitting, you know, maybe one year he hits like 370 with 52 doubles and 47 homers or something. <laughs> totally absurd numbers. First of all, he's doing that in course field, and second, it's in the heart of the steroid era. Uh, and people, you can't calibrate it easily. I mean, you know that there's some air to be left let out of it there, but knowing exactly how much air has to be let out of it is uh, it's a calculation thing. So the uh, and people, as as Amos Diversity demonstrated, people are very good at very bad at intuitive mental calculations. <laughs> but people have to basically run numbers in their head based not on calculation but on a sense of scale, they're very bad at it. And I think that's all it is. I, I just think people don't, unless you sit down and study the question, you don't realize that Todd Helton really is a Hall of Famer, even if you let the air out. So w- one thing on that uh, and the cores effect and the, um, the hangover effect, uh, something that I've spent a lot of time on is the – that hangover effect that I mentioned and the Rockies, uh, since they've been a team in what was their first season, 1993, they've of course been first, first, first in batting average on base percentage at home. And, um, during that same span, they've been last, last, last in each of those on the road. And it's not really even close. And so when you look at this and you look at the numbers and how far away from second best and second worst they are sure they're a little bit closer to second worst than they are to second best but when you look at i think there's something to be said about that and it it really is that the hangover effect it, it's got to it has to be real there has to be something to this and it's its impact is is negative and it's it's great and when I uh, I was fortunate enough to speak to Larry Walker before his induction and he he agreed that he thinks it's a real thing but um, it's going to impact guys differently, of course. I think when you look at the Rockies as a whole, you either have to look at them as, since 1993 and say either this team was so bad offensively without Coors Field that they were worse than the likes of the Pirates who had two or three winning seasons, or they're probably somewhere in the middle overall and that this hangover effect has uh, this equal, maybe not equal, but opposite effect of the, uh, the course effect. And, uh, I think the truth lies somewhere in there. And overall, when you look at a player's statistics, of course, Coors Field is not Fenway Park, but people, uh, ball players who are going from Fenway and then onto the road are not dealing with the 
whatever kind of hangover effect that guys playing in Colorado are. So do you think that uh, as a whole, when you look at a Rockies players, that their numbers are probably put pretty close to what they would put up if they were playing for, I don't know, the Red Sox or the Yankees or maybe anywhere else. LeMay is a great example uh, recently. No, I don't think that at all. I mean, the hangover effect is real. And what it is, I think, is the breaking ball. I mean, since you can't really throw a breaking pitch, and most, most people can't ever learn to throw a breaking pitch in Colorado, so you're at home for a week and you don't see a, you don't see a curveball in the strike zone. And, you know, it affects how well you hit a curveball when you go on the road. I mean, I think that's, I believe that's what it is. I know there are also people who argue that, that it, uh, uh, that, that it's related to the altitude. the altitude and your, and your, and the amount of, amount of, uh, our, what is it? There's something in your blood that it, it, that thins out when you get to high altitudes and you, you have to adjust it. I don't know. Maybe that's it. I, th- I think it's the curveball. Uh, but I don't agree that that Todd, Todd Helton would have had anything like the similar similar numbers if he was in another park. I do think that his that you know, but he, you have to deal with how phenomenal his numbers are. It, yeah. It, so he goes to another park. He's not going to hit 370 with with 52 doubles and 47 homers. I don't believe. I don't think he's going to be anywhere close to that. But let's say it's 320 with 35 homers and 120 RBI. I, that's still a Hall of Famer. The, uh, uh, and I don't know that the Rockies have dealt with it very well. And the thing is, you have to win, right? Whatever your every park has challenges, and I agree that the Rockies park has greater challenges than others, than others but wherever it is, your challenges are you still have to win for a long time. We heard that the, there was a special problem of playing in Wrigley because uh, you play all those day games and the, uh, uh, you, you, you never really adjust to playing night baseball. And also the wind in Wrigley is so erratic that it's a different park every day. Well, I don't doubt that that's true, but it doesn't have a damn thing to do with their winning. I mean, the fact is, Whatever the challenges your park are, you still got to win. And the Rockies haven't won enough for for us to say that they have dealt successfully with their challenges. They they had what, what they had. I think they had. I believe they've had three years in twenty six three seasons in twenty six years in which they were ten games over five hundred. That ain't enough. I mean, they they've got to do better than that before I'd be willing to say that they're. Uh, I I agree that Helton's a Hall of Famer and Larry Walker's a Hall of Famer, uh, but and I agree that you, if you're going to adjust for the batters, you have to adjust for the pitchers in the other direction. But I do not think the Rockies have done a great job of. I don't think they're an average team over a period of time. Hey Bill, outside of the early 2000 Red Sox, the A's, and things like that, it seems as though that is when. Um, evaluation of ball players really changed. Do you know throughout the history of like of baseball, the last time that there was that catastrophic of a change in player evaluation before the early two thousands, because it hasn't been the same since I'm sure in the future, we're going to look back at this year and go, ha ha ha, you know, those stats, look at all the holes we find in those. But was there ever a time where evaluation changed as much as it did about 20 years ago? Yeah, there is, and the time is, is 1910, and 
And it's a peculiar thing, but if you look at the era 1900 to 1910, it's phenomenal what happened. Uh, Ty Cobb was released by a minor league team. Walter Johnson was released by a minor league team. Chris Speaker went to spring training with the with the uh, uh, New York Giants and and didn't get signed to a contract. Um, Grover Cleveland Alexander was was sold for nothing. He went, he had a monster year in the minor leagues, and the next and over the winter he got sold for fifty dollars or something. The, the, in that era, there are just a phenomenal number of unbelievable mis uh, mis misevaluations of players, and, and that occurred because. Uh, the evaluation is being done by minor league owner operators who often didn't have the foggiest notion what they were doing. And that over a period of, by 1920, minor league operators were savvy enough that there are really no uh, disasters of that scale anywhere in baseball. I mean, obviously, paper is being sold as a disaster of money of proportion, but at least he was sold for $100,000. You know? The, uh, and a couple of offers. So that was the last time that a a sea change in the evaluation of players happened at that level, I think. All right, so here's the other one then, and this is completely different. Um, who's your one favorite pitcher or, or position player all time that you just love watching and why, and who's that one guy today? The uh, well, I mean, Sandy Koufax is too obvious, so I'll say Danny Jackson, and also Brett Saber. Danny Sabre. Jackson. Wow. All right, let's hear it. Yeah. So Danny was fun to watch. He he had a, a he had Sandy Koufax delivery where he he put his leg way out in front of him and then threw into his leg rather than vaulting over his leg, and and uh, it was beautiful. And when he was on, he was really good. Uh, Saberhagen, who was his teammate that came out of mine at the same time, the uh, uh, Saberhagen was really when when he was healthy, he was as close to a perfect pitcher as has ever existed. I mean, he he could throw as hard as anybody in the league. He had great breaking stuff. He had phenomenal control, and he really knew how to pitch. Uh, he didn't quite last long enough to make it to Hall of Fame, but he he was as much fun to watch as anyone I've ever seen, I think. Of course, you know, El Duque was fantastic to watch, you know, and uh, Orlando Hernandez. He was he was as much fun to watch as anybody ever lived. And the thing with Sabathias, Sabathias, I'll miss him. He, he was just, uh, it's like, you see him on the mound, you think, where did they find that guy? <laughs> um. Bill, I'm just going to flip back to the Hall of Fame one more time before we cut you loose because we kept you probably a lot longer than you want to talk to our uh, the two of us. But um, one thing that frustrates me a great deal is the fact that uh, a guy like Kurt Schilling, who in my opinion was a better pitcher than Mussina, was a better pitcher than John Smoltz, um, is on the outside looking in. And we all know why he's on the outside looking in. Is I guess he's got a big mouth and he's got opinions that are in the wrong direction, whatever. Um, but do you think it gets to a point where you stop playing gatekeeper and you realize that it's about the guy's baseball body of work and let him into the Hall of Fame and realize it's not a Hall of Morality a hall or a Hall of whatever an individual's uh, morality or opinions happen to be? 
and realize there there are some people who are a hell of a lot worse than Kurt Schilling in the Hall of Fame already. And um, right. just you let the guy in based off his baseball merits. And one thing I hear oftentimes is they're like, I get this character clause um, shoved down my throat all the time. Now, sure, there's a character clause, and it's part of the voting thing. But if you look at Schilling's career, he was a Roberto Clemente Award winner. He won a number of awards for his character and his charity work. And now he's a little bit too uh, political in one direction for people and has said some things that offend people, I guess. And uh, people don't like him for that reason and won't vote for him. And one of the things that often gets thrown around is that um, that tweet that he said about the stupid T-shirt. That was a bad joke. Sure. I don't think he actually wants to kill journalists, but um, I, I think and I'm wondering if you think the same. It gets to a point where, OK, let's let the guy in for what he did on the baseball field. And if you don't like him, you don't have to like him. That's right. The, uh, I, I agree with that. I mean, Schilling was a Hall of Famer, I think. My, I, I certainly would vote for him. I think probably 55% of us at least would vote for him. The, um, we're not a forgi- very forgiving culture. I mean, and, and uh, I believe in forgiveness. I believe in the acceptance of failings that people have. And uh, I, I don't think that you can, I don't think you can build a winning franchise uh, with, Unless you have that mindset, I think if uh, the judgmental people were ever in charge of a baseball franchise and and they and they uh, used the standard of righteous conduct to select players, they'd probably finish last. I think the Padres actually did that in the '70s. I used to make fun of them for, <laughs> for it. You know, uh, the uh, what I mean. I don't know that you can. You can't throw conduct out the window because it is relevant to winning. You you can't have guys on your team who beat their wives. You can't have guys on their team who who don't care about winning. Who you can't have guys who disrespect the manager, or you will not win. And so it's it's relevant if it's relevant to winning, but the uh, uh, or or if it's you know beyond the pale. But you know, Kurt's not any of those things. Kurt's just a a guy who irritates people sometimes. Well, I met a John Smoltz irritates people a lot of times, but but uh, uh, I remember <laughs> I was with the Red Sox about 2006 or something. They're in the, both of their careers, and and we we released Schilling and and signed John Smoltz like a week later, and everybody's like, "Oh, this is the same guy." <laughs> <laughs> uh, somehow Smoltz has stayed okay. Hey, um, why don't you have a Hall of Fame vote? Have you ever asked for one or wanted one? The uh, uh, well, for a long time, the uh, I until I don't know 2005 or thereabouts, I would not have been eligible to join the BBWA. Uh, and uh, I guess, and you know, I when that, that period passed, I wasn't really a writer, I was working for the Red Sox. But I don't know, I maybe I should do that, but I don't know if I'm going to live long enough now to get a vote. We'll see. <laughs> You're not that old. What are you, 70? You're talking like you're Methuselah over here. Settle down, <laughs> James. Settle down. Stop looking for the exit. Enjoy it. We got more baseball. At some point in time in your lifetime, we're going to play baseball. And it's probably going to be next year. But it'll be nice to do that. Spader, you're going to end up owing me $100 because they're not going to play before June 1st. 
that'll be a hundred dollars well spent. But uh, Mr. James, I really appreciate you coming on and talking some baseball with us. Uh, not to fan girl out again, but I, uh, like I said, this is uh, something that I've long wanted to do. Um, I, I've looked up to your work for a long time. Uh, I, I sent you a copy of my book. I know I hope, hope you get a chance to look at it because uh, a lot of those words in there are coming uh, not directly from you, but because of things that I've learned following your work for a long time. So uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, I hope you'll talk some baseball with us again soon. All right. Thanks for having me on. Anytime, guys. You've got a Bill James joining us here on the walk-off. And thanks, to everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you later in the week. Make sure you follow Ryan on Twitter, at the Ace of Spader, S-P-A-E-D-E-R, at the Ace of Spader. I'm at Holden Radio, and thank you for listening to Blue Wire's presentation of The Walk-Off.